Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director at the Madison Center, and in the studio with us at JMU's campus is Dr. Abe Goldberg. Hi, Abe. It is great to be back in our socially distanced studio. <laughs> Slash Abe's office. <laughs> <laughs> Um, also in studio, quote unquote, air quotes, is Angelina Clapp. She's going to be joining us this year. She just graduated from JMU and will be joining us as a fellow. Hi, Angelina. Hi, Kara. It's great to be here. Hi, Abe. And joining us remotely is Ryan Ritter, a rising sophomore majoring in history and international affairs. And I should also note, he's also an SGA senator and a democracy fellow at JMU Civic. We are very excited for our guest today, who was suggested to us by Madison Center Advisory Council member Jamie Lockhart, and she is also a JMU alum. We have with us David Litt. David wrote speeches for President Obama from 2011 to 2016 and was described as the comic muse for the president for his work on the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Since leaving the White House, he served as the head writer and producer for Funnier Die's office in Washington with a focus on improving youth turnout in the 2018 election and is currently developing a sitcom based on his life in DC. David, we are an academic center at a university that is committed to ensuring that individuals are educated and informed participants in democracy. And we focus a great deal on overcoming technical, structural, and motivational barriers to voting. In the first section of your book, you especially focus on technical and structural barriers, such as registration laws. Can you talk about the most often overlooked barriers in our voting system? And also, David, how do we re lower those barriers to promote voting? Well, I think it's such a big and important question because when I was growing up, I always learned that people don't vote because they're apathetic or because they're lazy, right? You know, people who uh, people who don't vote don't have the right to complain. You know, that that's what I always heard. And then, as I did research for this new book, I realized that's actually not true. And in fact, in many many cases, it's the opposite. People don't get to complain because they have no right to vote, or they have the right to vote but they don't have the ability to vote. So the way I break it down is there's really three major barriers to the ballot for Americans. Number one, there's many more Americans who do not have voting rights than I realized when I started writing this new book. Uh, number two, many Americans who theoretically have voting rights are taken off the registration rolls or never have the chance to get on the registration rolls. So even though you can legally register in theory, um, by the time the election rolls around, you can't cast a ballot or your ballot is invalidated after the fact, one or the other. Um, in other words, your your, uh, your right to vote is not technically um, attacked, but your ability to vote is. And then finally, there's a lot of people in America for whom voting is much, much, much more work than it is for others. And I think we're seeing this all around the country in these primary elections. You're seeing these two, three, four-hour long lines, and those are emblematic of a system where for a small but meaningful slice of Americans – uh, voting is simply too difficult, and um, many Americans, to their credit, are able to to do that anyway. But we're seeing reduced turnout because uh, even if theoretically you could cast a ballot and that ballot counts, you're not actually able to access the polling place and cast your vote. So all of those taken together help explain why America has lower turnout than just about any other developed democracy. 
Right, absolutely. Those are some of the most monumental uh, problems that are facing us currently. Uh, you worked in 2018 to improve youth turnout. Uh, what do you think are the most effective practices for reaching young people and connecting elections and political participation as means for making a difference on the issues they care about? I think youth turnout, first of all, we can't separate from turnout in general. Um, you know, the most important thing you can do for youth turnout is make sure people care about the candidates running, care about the issues and feel like the the change that they could make at the ballot box is going to re relate to change in their lives. Um, you know, none of that is particularly youth focused. And I will say, I think the way not to raise youth turnout is just to get you know a bunch of celebrities saying, "Hey, voting is so important." You need to tell people why voting is important. Sometimes, you know, I've, I've worked at Funny or Die. I got to work with plenty of famous people, but the goal is always to get people's attention and then help them realize why their vote matters so much. The other thing that I will say is the question you just asked and the the question about barriers to voting are directly linked because for young people, it is much harder to vote than it is for many people who are more established in their lives and careers. If you move around a lot, your registration is often not current and you have to re-register. Um, if you, for example, right now in Georgia, they are trying to pass a law where you would have to scan and photocopy your driver's license to... Uh, to, to vote by mail. You'd have to include a printout of your driver's license. Um, that is going to be much more onerous for a lot of young voters who don't have a printer at home. You know, it, I certainly didn't own a printer for like my first many, many years out of college. And I only did buy a printer once I started writing books. So if you look at all of these things taken together, um, there's a combination of things. One is making sure people feel like their votes matter. But the other is also making sure that voting is as easy as possible when, in fact, for young voters, it's often harder than it is for voters who have been part of the political process for a longer time. Both of those things really matter a lot. So, David, in your book, Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think, um, you, you talk a lot about the unelectorate, which I, I really appreciate, and especially as a political scientist, um, that's, that's my training. And, and that field tends to really focus on analyzing and making predictions about the electorate, that is, who turns out to vote. Um, I wonder what we should be studying and trying to learn more about the unelectorate. Well, let, let me define those terms really quickly. So to me, uh, I thought it was really interesting that, for example, we have this word, the electorate, right? It's a, it's a you know, we don't use it necessarily in conversation all the time, unless you have some, maybe in political science, you know, you do use it in conversation all the time, but it means all of the voters, right? We have a word for all the voters. The word for a group of non-voters is a group of non-voters. We don't have one. So in my book, I sort of helpfully made one. And because, you know, I'm a creative professional, I called it the unelectorate. I just slapped an un on top of the one word we have. Um, I think that because we don't focus on voters, or sorry, rather on non-voters enough, it actually has a real effect on our politics because what it means is that then it encourages politicians to only think about the will of the voters rather than the will of the people. And in turn, because of the way our political process is, is um, constructed, it encourages politicians to see whether they can push some people who are currently in the electorate or might be in the electorate into the world of the non-voters because they think, well, you know, these people might not vote for me. So rather than try to convince them with better messages or new ideas, I'm just going to keep them from voting, and then I don't have to worry about them. And that's the antithesis of how a democratic society should function. Um, it's the opposite of the way accountability should function. 
And so, um, you know, when we look at non-voters and the things that I think are most important, to me, the single thing that matters most when it comes to non-voters is why aren't they voting? But I would also say we ought to be asking ourselves what non-voters want. Um, In a lot of polls of public opinion, they ask voters what they want. So they say, um, you know, we'll just pick an issue at random. They'll ask, you know, a thousand voters or, or likely voters or registered voters, what do the voters want on climate change? But they're not asking a thousand Americans what they think about climate change. And as the gap between the electorate and the unelectorate grows, the gap between what the American people want and what the voters want also grows. And that means there's a growing gap between what our government does and what the people want it to do. And so I think that's a that's an important distinction. And then also figuring out which of those issues is important in terms of getting people to vote. David, when you say that elections are a reflection of, of the electorate rather than the unelectorate, and we know from lots of research that we can predict pretty accurately who's going to be in the electorate relative to the unelectorate, what does that say about equity? When we know that, that, that certain demographic factors and socioeconomic factors to, helps to predict who's going to vote and who's not going to vote. Well, I'm glad you asked because one of the points that I make in the book is that if the electorate mirrored the population exactly, in other words, if we only had 50% of of people voting, but those 50% were demographically identical to the 100% of Americans, it might be sort of a shame that we didn't have more people voting, but you wouldn't see an impact on our policy, on on the direction of our country. As it happens, the electorate and the population look totally different. So the the voters are more likely to be um, they're more likely to be white than the average American. Uh, they're more likely they're disproportionately wealthy. They're disproportionately uh, homeowners as opposed to renters. They're disproportionately older as opposed to younger. The w- the way I put it is along every single dimension, the average voter looks more like Donald Trump than the average American, and. That's particularly um, stark in two different areas, um, race and age. So if you look at nearly every one of the the problems, the barriers to voting I just talked about, they exist for everybody. I mean, I, I certainly know white people who have waited in an hour-long line to vote. But in 2012, for example, you were six times more likely to wait an hour or more to vote if you were non-white. And if you look at voter purges, which are taking millions of Americans, including millions of eligible Americans, off of voter rolls, again, that disproportionately is affecting non-white voters. Um, some of this is because in America and the way that our society functions um, and the systemic racism that so many people are out in the streets protesting right now, um, any sort of uh, incompetence tends to hurt non-white people more than it hurts white people. That's just generally and sadly a fact of American life. But a lot of it is also intentional. And when we talk about intentional um, skewing of the electorate away from uh, the population, that's also where young voters increasingly come in. Because one of the things that happens in American politics is that anytime a group of voters becomes identified with just one party, the other party starts to try to disenfranchise that group. And that's what we're seeing with young voters. Um, as young voters become more and more reliably Democratic voters, 
we've seen more and more laws passed specifically to try to disenfranchise those voters or to make it extremely difficult for them to vote. And so now, um, you know, and, and particularly college students, I will say, because college students are changing their addresses constantly. Um, you know, they uh, they're, they're live sort of in one place, you know, half the year, two thirds of the year and another place the rest of the year. Um, college students are particularly easy uh, to disenfranchise if that's what you want to do. And we've seen these efforts over and over. Um, David, you point to many efforts over time to suppress voting rights based largely on race and ethnicity, but also on class. You also point to voting rights as the means to address some of the most pressing issues like mass incarceration that affect different groups. Can you speak to the role of who has voting rights and who doesn't um, and how that affects policies and outcomes and the socioeconomic and political inequalities that we see today? Yeah, I'm glad you point, pointed out that issue of race and class because I think um, it is not – it would be a mistake to say that the voting – the only people whose voting rights have been targeted are non-white voters and young voters, although, as I just said, that's a uh, sort of the key categories. But if you look through our history um, – Lower income voters have always been targeted as well. When the country started out, nearly every state had property requirements for voting. So you literally had no voting rights unless you had a certain amount of money uh, or paid a certain amount in taxes. Um, but it's not just that. In the 1830s, they set up a voter registration in Pennsylvania, but it only applied in the city of Philadelphia. And they sent around people to register voters, but they only did it during work hours. And that meant that the working class of Philadelphia, generally speaking, wasn't home. And so they got lower register the, – the registration numbers among working class voters in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania was artificially lower than it would have otherwise been. And you know, fast forward a couple decades to the 1890s and the poll tax in the South, which was the primary tool, the most effective tool for keeping um, non-white Americans from voting. But it came out as a reaction to this brief um, – uh, alliance in the 1890s between working class white voters and black voters. And so this the poll tax was a way of disenfranchising both groups simultaneously. Um, when you look at all of that, many of those things are still true today. And the, the problem is when you are able to disenfranchise disproportionately one group of people, then you can continue to pass policies that target that group of people and sometimes you can get a vicious circle or a vicious cycle because for, this, I think, is particularly true for young voters. If young voters feel like they're not being heard by the political process, they're less likely to vote, which makes it easier for politicians to pass new laws that target their voting rights. And this happens in, you know, in a loop. So the flip side of that is I also think once you re-enfranchise voters, you can have a snowball effect, but in a good way. So once you bring people into the electorate, um, they tend to want to stay there, and then they can vote against politicians who don't want to keep them there. And often they tend to want to expand voting rights further. So I, I think in both ways, when you think about who you allow into the electorate, but also who you keep out, um, you can either get a cascade of good outcomes or a cascade of bad outcomes. But one of the reasons this stuff is so important is that it's not just one law. It's not just one moment. It's about the trajectory that we move on as a country. I think one of the important things that you also point out is the way, uh, you know, who has the 
who has the power to grant rights to voting, right? And you've, you've already mentioned in our conversation here the role of Pennsylvania and Georgia. Um, you also talk about the role of a number of other states in your book. Um, and it really raises the question for me um, about what the proper role of states should be um, in, in regulating voting rights and ballots. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the way America runs its elections is that to a pretty unprecedented degree, we don't really have national elections. We have a conglomeration of state elections that are all run differently and everyone's laws are different. And when it comes to the administration of our elections, how many polling places we have, how many poll workers we hire, just the basic blocking and tackling, even that is not done at a state level. It's generally done at a county level. Um, and so what we see from all of that is, on one hand, there, there's some real value to that. Um, our elections would be much easier for a foreign country to hack, for example, to go in and tamper with the final vote count if we were only running one election. But because we run 50 different ones, it's fairly difficult to get into all of those systems and hack them. Um, that, so that's certainly an advantage. A disadvantage is that many people in many states have... Uh, are, are operating under a system of laws that is much less fair than you would want to see. Um, I think it's generally not a bad thing that states run elections, but I think the federal government needs to set standards um, in much the same way that the federal government sets standards for roads by saying, here's how we're going to construct the highways. The federal government can set standards for state and local elections by saying, here are the minimum requirements for a federal election. And that's why a lot of the biggest changes that would help improve our democracy can happen at the federal level and they can happen very quickly. So things like automatic voter registration, um, uh, you know, ending overbroad voter purges, um, all sorts of uh, really basic reforms that would make an enormous difference. We don't have to do them 50 different times in 50 different states. We could do them at a federal level. Absolutely. And uh, thinking about elections, we also think about the consequences of elections, which is something you mentioned in detail. And uh, we found your concept of the uh, the Skywalker window particularly interesting. Uh, can you talk about the Skywalker window? And do you see any potential Skywalker windows maybe in 2020? The Skywalker window is this idea that I had for explaining how I think change can happen right now in our broken political process. In theory, you want making big change to be like building a cathedral, you know, like like many, many people working together over time, adding little details and flourishes year after year after year. In practice, that's no longer possible because of the way that our political process and our legislative process are not functioning in a, in a way that they should. Instead, what you get is something that looks more like the end of episode four of Star Wars. So you have Luke Skywalker kind of headed toward the Death Star and it looks impenetrable, and it looks like it's completely impervious to change. But there's a tiny little opening, and that opening won't last for very long, but if you make your shot in the right moment, everything changes in an instant. And I think that is very much how change, especially when it comes to changing and reforming our democracy, can happen in 2020 and, and more to the point in 2021. So I do think it's entirely possible. That if you had the House, the Senate, and the White House all occupied by people who wanted to see our government function better than it does today, um, that that combination, the the you know having the sort of trifecta, the House, Senate, and White House, could 
mean that you open up a Skywalker window um, and you can make real change really quickly. But I also want to be very clear about that. It will not stay open for a very long time. Um, you know, one of the things I think uh, the Obama administration saw and just about every other administration has seen is that your political capital is very high at the beginning of an administ administration and it goes down. Um, the honeymoon period does not last. And I think in our current polarized environment, the honeymoon period is shorter than it's ever been, if it even exists. So it's going to be important not just to act, but to act very quickly. David, especially in light of the COVID-19 global public health pandemic, can you talk about the strengths and challenges um, of universal mail-in voting? Mail-in voting is already in use in five states. And one of the things that... Um, one of the things I wrote about in my book, I said, you know, it seems like the states that use mail-in voting like it, but uh, I don't think we're all going to be talking about it by the time the book comes out, so I'm not really going to, you know, mention it very much. Uh, that was wrong. It turns out, obviously, um, you know, I finished the book before COVID, and now mail-in voting has become incredibly urgent. Um, I think the, the so mail-in voting is both important during COVID because it's a way for more people to cast ballots that don't involve putting their health at risk. And because it's a way of making sure that we don't face lines that could be seven or eight hours long when people are, um, you know, we don't have enough poll workers because a lot of our poll workers are over the age of 60 and at high risk for COVID. So I think all of that is important. I think that when we look at the, um, when sorry, when we look at the, uh, the mail-in ballot picture in 2020, we should also be looking beyond that. I think this is a moment for First of all, a lot of voters who have never experienced difficulty voting before, realizing that voting is not as easy as, as it seems, and to remember that this is happening to some people all the time. So there's a lot of white voters for whom this is the first time they've ever showed up at the polls in person and had to wait for three hours. There's a lot of non-white voters who say, yeah, that happens in my neighborhood pretty regularly. That happens in my state every year or every two years. Um, and so- Hopefully, the conversation we're having about mail-in balloting and the, the rules that we're trying to put in place will lead to a broader conversation that says voting should be easy. What if we just did you know this wild idea and said voting ought to be easy? And that's just not the way that we currently think about voting as a country, and it would be a, a sea change that could last not just this year but well beyond it. David, we ask all of our guests on Democracy Matters um, the same question, and that is, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Um, well, your whole book <laughs> is about that, essentially. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, you've, you, you talk about a lot of what's broken in the system, that's also part of the title, um, and what we could do to fix it. Um, what do you see as some of the most promising solutions to the challenges you write about, including partisan rancor, gerrymandering, campaign finance, voter suppression, political corruption, and how people are represented? So let me just – I'll just do a few because um, I do think uh, – right. I guess the answer to, to your question of, of what, do, what do we do about fixing democracy is like, – for me, it was like sit down and try to write a book about it. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> that may or may not be the most effective thing. But hopefully – um, you know, to, to get these ideas out there. And I think also really importantly to help people who care about what's going on. I mean, there's so many people who are politically engaged in a way they were not, you know, three or four years ago. And I think that's important. And I don't think it's just about Trump. I think hopefully it stays for a long time, but you can't just pay attention to everything happening above ground. 
you also need to understand what's going on at the foundation level. And you need to keep an eye on what's going on at the foundation level because it keeps changing. And that's hopefully what a book like this encourages people to do. It's not just educational, but it's about a mindset, how we approach our government. So now to actually answer your question, here's a few big things that I think we would do right off the bat that would make a big difference. Number one, we've talked about this a lot, make voting easier. Automatic voter registration, um, make sure that uh, you, you get rid of laws that say if you've ever committed a felony, you can't vote. I would add immigration reform to that list because we have tens of millions of immigrants who live here, who pay taxes here, but have no pathway to citizenship or are legally here, but um, are stuck in a very broken legal immigration process. And therefore, they live in America, but they can't vote. Um, so do those things right off the bat. Uh, when it comes to the legislative process, I think we need to end the legislative filibuster. We haven't talked a lot about the filibuster, but this is that threshold that says you need 60 votes to pass a piece of legislation. And that means that for the foreseeable future, it is going to be extraordinarily difficult for either party to pass laws. Um, and that's not the way a democracy should function. By the way, not just pass laws, but vote on laws. Um, I talked to Sarah Binder, who's a professor at George Washington University in DC, and she said, you know, I, I don't particularly have a lot of uh, a strong opinions over whether lots of laws should pass, but I do think legislators should be voting. And right now, our legislature, at least the upper chamber, doesn't vote. Um, so I think that's a, a sort of prerequisite to changing a lot of things. And I'll just add two more, although there's plenty of other pieces in the book that I think are important, but two more uh, things I think we could do right off the bat, um, statehood for Washington, D.C. and statehood for Puerto Rico. And there's two reasons for that. One is, as a pure issue of fairness, you have over 700,000 people living in Washington. They already pay federal taxes, and yet they have no real representation in Congress. That's just wrong. Um, but also, the way that the Senate is constructed, because it favors small population states, and therefore more rural states, and therefore more conservative states over larger, more urban states, um, the, the Senate is cur currently very skewed in favor of red states. There's, Trump won 30 states, even though he lost the popular vote. So that would be, in theory, 60 senators from states Trump won. Um, this would add two, uh, two senators from D.C. and two from Puerto Rico who come from states that Trump would almost certainly not have won. And that would not be enough to balance out that advantage that Republicans currently enjoy, but it would at least mitigate it a little bit. It would bring us closer to fairness because I do think there is a danger that the construction of the Senate is ultimately what drags down American democracy and therefore American, you know, the entire country, right? Not just not just our political process, but then our economy, our public health, and so much else. It's it's interesting, David, because going full circle from the beginning of this conversation, when you first sought to to ask why people didn't vote, you know, there's this assumption that there's ambivalence. All of the suggestions that you made uh, attack systems, right, or not attack address systems. And so can you sort of speak to, and I know we said that was our last question, but I can't help it. Can, can, you, can you speak to the role of sort of the, the, the get out the vote in the current system relative to tackling some of these systemic changes that you're addressing if, if the overall goal is to improve voter turnout? Well, actually, if I can just add to that, one of yeah. the things that you address in your book is how, um, you know, a lot of the get out the vote is is 
considered a <laughs> is is considered a civic duty, right? Something that that is not paid, right? And so there's sort of an imbalance in the system in terms of what is what is paid work versus unpaid work. Sure. So I, I, it it is pretty remarkable that if you ask Americans, should we have high voter turnout? Seventy um, percent of us say yes. And that's a number you don't just get from any one political party. You need both parties plus independents to support that idea. Yet in America, unlike in nearly every other democracy, we consider high turnout a public good, but we don't rely on the on the public, on the government, to help up provide that public good. Um, you know, expanding turnout really comes down to uh, politicians and to civic organizations. And so it's not surprising, you know, in the same way that we don't say um, we want to make sure that all of our uh, seniors get social security. So we'll have Democratic and Republican volunteers hand out the checks. Well, you wouldn't be surprised when lots of people don't get their checks. That's not a, an efficient way to do it. Um, I think that the way that I think about these get out the vote efforts and the, the systems go hand in hand, that the system is about making it easier to do the get out the vote effort. And at the same time, the get out the vote effort hopefully inspires people to go to the polls who will then want to change the system. So one of the things about both breaking democracy and fixing democracy is that it, there's a gravity to it. Once you start to do it, it, it builds on itself. And unfortunately, over my lifetime, over the last 33 years, we've mostly seen the bad version of that. We've seen a breakdown of democracy that leads to further breakdowns in democracy. But I think that over the next six months even, or over the next year, we could see the opposite, where expansions of democracy lead to expansions of democracy. And I think voting is, is a really important example for that. And I think particularly in terms of uh, get out the vote efforts, I think that's an important example for that. Um, and the last thing I will say about all of that is, and when we think about that virtuous cycle, I, we started off with some questions about youth turnout. And I think one of the most important things, and you know, there's kind of like a few things that I think you need to understand if you want to understand American politics. And one of them is that the fact that our country seems like it can't get its act together is not an accident. This was by design. Um, there, there, so there is a, a concerted effort to make the government not work and then to go to, especially to young people and say, hey, the government doesn't work. They're all equally bad. That is not how our system was actually constructed. The reason the government doesn't work is because it's working very well for some people who made the government work that way. So actually, I think as we think about terms that we maybe shouldn't use, and I use it plenty in my book, but you know, maybe I'll make a resolution now. When we talk about dysfunction, um, that's actually not the right word. We have a government that is functioning incredibly well for a very small group of people. And we need to make sure that voters and non-voters, and particularly young voters, understand that this is not natural, that it's that there is something we can do about this, but you need to you need to um, participate first. You need to buy in first, and then you can change the system. You can't wait for the system to change and then say, okay, once it changes, I'll buy in. Because if that happens, you're leaving 
all of your power to people who don't want you to have any power in the first place. Absolutely. Those are all great points. And just one more question, because I did want to touch on this topic. So we talked about elections. We talked about at times the dysfunction of our legislative branch and the way that legislation gets passed. But one thing that we haven't brought up yet is the Supreme Court. And you mentioned that an entire section of your book is dedicated to the judicial branch and how at times that can regress policy on election reform and various others. And recent decisions, you explicitly mentioned Citizens United. You make reference to Shelby County versus Holder. Uh, do you favor any reforms to the Supreme Court and how it functions in order to guarantee a more just democracy? I think the Supreme Court is technically the same branch. I mean, I don't think this. I know the Supreme Court is technically the same branch of government that it was when I was born. Practically speaking, not just the Supreme Court, but the courts in general play a completely new role in American life. And th there's a long uh, version of the story, but the short version is the judiciary has always depended on independence from politics. And over the last 40 years, the conservative movement in particular has broken down that independence so that the goals of conservative judges and the goals of Republican politicians align very, very neatly. And in many cases, people who got their start in Republican politics are now serving on the bench. Um, and, and that's, by the way, been true throughout history. But what's different about this moment is it's more universally true. And so you have, um, I believe it's more than 60% of judges who were nominated under Reagan, either President Bush or Trump, through a nomination process that was more explicitly political than anything that came before it. And so the courts have, unfortunately, become a new veto point in our government. In other words, a new thing that any bill has to get through in order to survive. And that veto point essentially functions as any law has to win the approval of the conservative movement before it can move forward. And that sometimes happens. I mean, we saw this happen with um, rulings on DACA and on LGBTQ plus rights um, very recently, but more often it doesn't happen. And it's not that it isn't happening because the constitution you know, says so in stone. It's not happening because of a nomination process that has been completely changed over recent decades. So what I think we need to do is push back on that by, um, uh, and particularly when it comes to the seats that were held open when President Obama was in office, um, and then those seats were then packed with justices or and judges that were extremely friendly to President Trump and to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I think the best way to disincentivize that behavior in the future is to say it won't work because if you do that, we will expand the courts. Refill those new seats with people who will counter out balance the judges you appointed. And so ultimately, it's just not worth the effort. It's not worth the time. And so I do think we should expand the Supreme Court at least to 10 seats. And I think we should expand the lower courts as well um, by at least 142 seats, which was the number held open uh, at the end of the Obama years. And I think the goal of this, and I want to be very, very clear about this, the goal of this should not be to fill the courts with liberals so that the courts become a liberal veto point so that laws can't get passed by conservatives, the role of the courts ought to be independence from politics. But I think restoring that independence is going to take some reforms. David Litt, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. We're going to put a link in the podcast notes to your new book, Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, helps us with syndication. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. 
be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about JMU Civic at jmu.edu slash civic. Until next time.